Great. Well, welcome, everyone. Um, I'm Esther Babson. I am the Climate Security Program Manager for the American Security Project. And we're thrilled to have you all here today. So for those less familiar with the American Security Project, we are a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit. And we focus on the long-term national security threats that face the United States, everything from counterterrorism to nuclear nonproliferation, energy security, and today's topic, climate security. And we have been working on the particular issue of climate security since our founding in 2006. And it's an issue that is facing some positive developments, but also the consequences of climate change are um, beginning to manifest in, in pretty significant and disturbing ways. So today we'll be focusing on the impacts, particularly within Southeast Asia. And as the brief mentioned on the website, this is a region that's facing incredible transformation. So it's Having a growing population, you have a rising GDP and middle class, simultaneously with a growing impact of climate change. It's a region that's highly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, in particular natural disasters. And when you have a over-reliance on agriculture um, or heavy reliance on agriculture, it can really impact um, people's daily lives. And with that, undoubtedly, will threaten um, both their livelihood and security across the region. So. Um, we'll discuss some good case studies within different countries, but abroad, hopefully look at, at these threats. So um, to kick it off, I'll introduce each of our panelists, which we're thrilled to have, and then we'll have them each provide some brief opening remarks, and then we'll um, transition to questions. So first we have next to me um, Vice Admiral Lee Gunn. Um, Admiral Gunn is on the American Security Project Board, and he has served in the Navy for 35 years. Prior to his retirement in 2000, his last active duty assignment was Inspector General of the Department of the Navy, where together with his Marine Deputy, he was responsible for the department's overall inspection program and its assessment of readiness, training, and quality of service. Next to him, we have Ambassador Robert Blake. Ambassador Blake serves for 31 years in the State Department in a wide range of leadership positions. From 2013 to 2016, he served as the U.S. Ambassador to Indonesia, where he focused on building stronger business and educational ties between the U.S. and Indonesia, while also developing cooperation to help Indonesia reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In 2009, he was also nominated by President Obama to the Assistant Secretary for South and Central Asia, serving from 2009 to 2013. And 2006 to 2009, he served concurrently as the U.S. Ambassador to Sri Lanka and the Maldives. And finally, we have Ashley Westerman. Ashley is an NPR journalist and a producer for NPR's flagship news magazine radio program, Morning Edition, and writes often for NPR World. Ashley primarily focuses on Southeast Asia issues and current events and assists in network and facilitating coverage of the region by both bringing stories and interviews with newsmakers into Morning Edition, as well through her individual reporting for NPR World. So with that, thank you all for being here, and I'll start with you, Admiral Gunn. Okay, thank you very much, Esther. Um, thank you for being here. We appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you, and I think we hope it will be a conversation when we get to the Q&A uh, point. A couple of comments from me to begin with. I'm a Vietnam veteran. Uh, 1965, the buildup in Vietnam, I was fired over to Vietnam, and I spent uh, the majority of the next four years 
in and around Vietnam, and all of my sea duty in the 17 years I was on sea duty for my career was in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. So the South China Sea, the Philippine Sea, the Bashi Channel, the areas that are presently prominent in the news uh, as being sites of potential future conflict are very uh, familiar to me. Uh, as the stresses on the nations in Southeast Asia, and that includes, of course, not just the Asian continent nations, but others as well, Singapore, Brunei, and things that Ambassador Blake knows are better than I. The pressures on these, uh, growing population, increasing aspirations uh, for joining the middle class, increased demand for energy, um, the economic imperatives that go with that, together with the issues surrounding climate change that are directly affecting East Asia, Southeast Asia, and South Asia, make this an area that is not only important right now for America's national security and the relationship with our friends and allies in the region, but will increasingly be an important area for America's security in the future. Um, uh, when people talk about the opportunities and the, and the um, disadvantages that the people of Southeast Asia face in the coming years, um, one of the most serious and often the most neglected uh, is the flow of the rivers, the five great Asian rivers. Uh, as you probably know, the headwaters of the rivers are in, on the Himalayan Plateau. Uh, they're in Tibet, and the Indus, the Brahmaputra, the Yellow, the Yangtze, and the Mekong, especially the Mekong, are all under stress because they are increasingly being um, having dramatically different seasonal flows, whereas for thousands of years, uh, the local population's been able to depend on a relatively constant flow. Um, and it also, with the demand for energy and the demand for food increasing in the region, uh, the stresses on these rivers will increase as well. One final point, uh, I've walked around the rice paddies in Vietnam. It's been a long time, but I recognize how, uh, how the, the, the fact that the elevation is so low in that area. As a matter of fact, my guess is that with about three feet of sea level rise, Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City, will be an island. And think about what the impact is on the people of Asia, Southeast Asia, when this breadbasket is no longer as productive as it has been in the past. Already the, the uh, water is beginning to be more saline um, than it was in the past or that is healthy various varieties of rice. So, I've been drawn on, Ambassador Blake. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let me first of all say it's a, it's a real pleasure to be here, and I, I really want to commend ASP for you know, drawing attention to this and also looking at it from a, from a security perspective. Um, I was telling uh, everybody beforehand, when I was ambassador, um, uh, we used to get fairly regular visits from our uh, PACOM commander, the commander of the Pacific a wonderful man called him Admiral Locklear. And uh, so he would always do a press availability at the end of, of his trips. And 
the Indonesian press would ask him, you know, what do you consider the greatest security threat here in Indonesia? Fully expecting him to say, oh, you know, China or you know some other thing, and instead he always talked about climate change and how that was going to be uh, the greatest single threat to Indonesia and something that they really needed to pay attention to, which I think kind of startled them to begin with because they really weren't expecting it. But it was a very wise thing for him to say that. Um, as as was mentioned, I uh, when I was ambassador, um, my boss is John Kerry and he and Barack Obama, and they both care deeply about climate change, and we were just gearing up for the Paris climate talks. And so um, we needed to, Indonesia to make some fairly deep uh, commitments on uh, reducing its greenhouse gas emissions. At the time, it was the fifth largest contributor to greenhouse gases in the world. And um, you know that was because um, while Indonesia has made great progress um, on, on the economic side, uh, since the Asian financial crisis in 1998, uh, a lot of that progress came at the expense uh, of the environment, and particularly in terms of uh, the carbon growth. Um, their carbon emissions increased roughly 50% in the last 20 years. Most of that was because of um, deforestation, but uh, a lot of that also because of continued very heavy reliance on fossil fuels, particularly coal. Um, and all of that has had a very significant impact already on, on Indonesia. Although I will say that the data still is not, not very good on a lot of these things. Um, first of all, on human health, a, a recent study estimated that 60% of the population of Jakarta, so itself one of the largest urban areas in the world, um, are affected by air pollution of one sort or another caused by fossil fuels. Um, a second major, major issue is, of course, the growing intensity of fires, uh, which have been much in the news recently. But um, in 2015, Indonesia had even more serious fires in, uh, across Sumatra and the island of Kalimantan as well. And uh, those are attributed to drier conditions that, have, uh, that are, again, attributed to uh, in increases in, in greenhouse gas emissions and, and climate change. Just to give you an impact, a, a sense of the impact of that, in, in the 2015 fires, it was estimated that the carbon released by those fires in Indonesia alone was equal to that of Germany's total carbon emissions in that year. So uh, you know, these fires really matter in terms of climate change. Um, and then the third, as Lee mentioned, the third big impact, and probably the biggest impact, is going to be in, in terms of sea level rise. Jakarta is already at sea level right now. Um, during the rainy season, as much as a quarter of the city is underwater at any one time, both because of sea level rise, but also because of subsidence. A lot of the groundwater has been used up by the city's population. So as you know, there's been a much publicized announcement to, uh, to move the capital of Jakarta to Kalimantan. That process is just beginning now. Um, I can go into more of the, the impacts of this, but for, for we. It, we can do that in the Q&A if you want. So the, the real question is, what is Indonesia doing about this? Um, in, in the, at the Paris uh, climate talks, uh, they, their, their nationally determined contribution, their NDC as they call it, was to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by 29% by 2030, which was you know, good, a very credible um, goal. And basically, the Ministry of Forests was, was assigned to uh, take about 17% of that, 
and reduce deforestation. And then the Ministry of Energy was assigned the other 12% to try to reduce the uh, fossil fuel uh, component of it and increase renewable energies to 23% of their total energy use by 2025. Um, they're not going to make that goal. They're not going to even come close to making that goal. Probably they'll get about half of the way there. Um, but to their credit, I think Indonesia has done some important things. The president has enacted a moratorium both on the clearing of primary forests as well as the clearing of peatland, both of which um, hold giant amounts of carbon. So I think those are really, really important things. Uh, the president established something called the Peatland Restoration Agency in 2018, which has the massive task of trying to restore 2.6 million hectares of peatland in Indonesia that has been destroyed in one way or another. Uh, and that process really is, is really just beginning, but is an important one. And earlier this year, working with the, or I guess last year now, uh, working with the World Resources Institute, they announced a low carbon development initiative, really to try to think broadly about how they can decarbonize their economy. So I think those are, those are really great things. There have been some private initiatives. Uh, there's a, a quite an important initiative up in Sumatra called Fire Free Villages, where they've, they've come up with a terrific way to just incentivize villages to prevent fires. And that, I think that's been quite good. Um, and I can talk more about that. But I would also just say that in Indonesia, like in many Southeast Asian countries, there are kind of structural impediments to making progress on this. Um, one is that Indonesia is this, this huge country, uh, roughly the size of from Alaska to Florida, if you were to put it on a map with overlaying the United States, 17,000 islands. Uh, and the center, the central government, often has trouble uh, obliging the provinces and the, pro and the districts to abide by its various wishes. So getting things done is often quite difficult. Secondly, law enforcement is quite poor. Uh, people are not very well paid, the police and others. Uh, so there's a lot of corruption. And that's particularly true in the forest area. Um, and then third is that there's no penalties. After the, the 2015 fires, um, the government uh, specifically fingered a lot of private companies. But to this day, none of them have really faced any kind of penalties for it. So, so there's, you know, there's not really an incentive yet for companies to, to really uh, comply with central government laws. So I think that they need to get a little bit tougher in that respect as well. Um, I also just think Indonesia is not yet one of the real global climate leaders. There's something called the Climate and Clean Air Coalition that now uh, comprises more than 60 countries around the world, including big countries like India, and the Philippines, and Vietnam, and, and several others in, in that region. Uh, Indonesia is not part of that initiative. Likewise, there's a, there's a hugely important initiative underway now um, called uh, Science-Based Targets, which is basically asking big global companies to abide by um, pretty rigorous scientifically derived um, greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. And so far, there are some 660 uh, companies around the world that have, uh, that have signed up for this. Uh, to this day, not a single Indonesian company has signed up. So, so there's a lot of work to be done. And I guess if I had to sort of summarize in one, one sentence, I would say, there's been a lot of good progress in the last couple of years, uh, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Thank you. Ashley? Um, hi. Um, oh, is this? Okay. Um,
radio person. I have to make sure my <laughs> microphone's working. Um, thank you so much uh, for having me here today. So um, as a journalist, my job is to basically take everything that they just said and turn it into stories that people, that, that I can tell and that people can consume. And I have traveled extensively throughout the region. Um, I'm actually of the region. I am Filipina. So climate change means a lot to me personally. Um, and I can say that, um, you know, everything that they say is obviously true, but how the people are dealing with it and how countries are adapting or managing, I guess would be the better <laughs> way to put it, is, is critical. And one thing that I just like really want to say is that this, and we talked about this, you know, previously before the event started, is these, Southeast Asia is in an interesting quandary, right? Because they, a lot of the places there need development, they need roads and they need electricity and they need factories and things like that. But more often than not, those things are not climate change friendly. So um, sort of the question we were asking ourselves earlier is what is the payoff? And those are sort of some of the stories that I have been fortunate enough to be able to tell um, with, uh, with NPR. And one of them that I think is Particularly interesting is we just spoke, they just spoke about, you know, the, um, the region's increasing reliance on coal, for example. Um, and China, uh, is essentially exporting. So China has been, uh, complimented as of recent of becoming more green. Um, but what they're actually doing, and this is a story that we did earlier this year when we attended the Belt and Road Conference in Beijing, is they're exporting those coal factories, technology, and capital into Southeast Asia, as well as South Asia, um, particularly places like Vietnam. Um, and so obviously, that puts Vietnam in an interesting uh, situation where they're like, we need this. However, you know, do we want to continue to destroy the environment? Um, an interesting fact that, uh, that I think is, is just very telling is that between 1990 and 2010, the IMF says emissions of carbon dioxide rose faster in Southeast Asia than anywhere else in the world. Um, and that's because the, uh, the development has increased, which is in a way helping the people. However, it continues to dump more carbon emissions into the atmosphere. And so, Climate change is obviously an existential crisis for um, Southeast Asia, as well as the Pacific Islands. Um, I know that's not really the purview of our conversation, but I have done some reporting on that as well. Um, and you know, when you think about climate change and what it means for security and conflict, I mean, some of this stuff seems pretty obvious, but it's things that you know we and our military and our you know top thinkers and policymakers need to need to really look into, and that is, you know, climate change has negative effects on livelihoods, and climate change actually influences tactical consideration of armed groups, meaning if a particular group is feeling insecure about their food, they, there have been studies that show that they increase attacks, things like that. Um, climate change also exploits vulnerabilities and resources, obviously. I mean, we just spoke about about that. And then it also displaces people. If you're not able to grow the rice, then you're not going to stay there. And so displacing people sends more people into the cities, which puts more pressure on um, you know, the infrastructure that's there, which makes cities want to build more. And a lot of these cities, um, as 
you know, they just brought up are, are low-lying. They're low-lying. Indonesia, uh, Jakarta is one of those places um, where that's happened. Um, Manila, where I was born, one of those places. Bangkok, actually Thailand is, I hear, considering moving <laughs> their capital again because they've grown so much that they are building on their floodplains and it leaves millions of people vulnerable to flooding. So, um, I mean, just the, the security and the conflict of the region, um, it, like part of that is most definitely prompted by climate change. And um, you can also talk about, I mean, you can talk about food security, vanishing forces, almost, I wouldn't say every, but if you look at almost any conflict happening in that region, it is most likely, you can most likely track it back to something that has to do with people whose livelihoods are in disarray for some reason or another, agriculturally, you know, economically, et cetera. Um, and so it is an absolutely critical um, issue for the region. And um, I look forward to answering your questions. Great. Well, thank, thank you all. Um, I think to start, I'll have a few introductory questions, and then we'll open up to the audience so you all can get in your questions. So first, just mentioned a lot of different topics, um, you know, sea level rise, fires, food security, water security. Obviously, these are all incredibly important issues and, and topics to discuss. Are there specific you know, problems or challenges within those that you all think are not receiving the coverage they deserve? Areas where there are a lot of vulnerabilities and a lot of um, challenges that just aren't, aren't getting that coverage? Um, I'd put in that category uh, the increase in violent weather. Um, for a part of the world that depends very heavily on fishing at this point, um, violent weather is a, an omnipresent threat. Um, on land, the drought, the changes in the patterns from the northeast to the southwest monsoon, uh, and the increase in violence and, and uh, frequency of typhoons. Uh, in those 17 years of sea duty, mm -hmm. I've experienced some typhoons. And what happens, very briefly, is that the, the surface winds put an extraordinary amount of energy into the water. As long as you're in 5,000 feet of water, that energy is distributed over the entire column of energy. Uh, when you get into the South China Sea in the Gulf of Tonkin, where it's 200 feet deep, that amount of energy is now contained in 200 feet. And so that's where you get 50-foot seas. And I've been for days in the, in the uh, trapped in a, in a typhoon uh, that was a Cat 4 or a Cat 5. And so I'm very attuned to this, this violent weather piece. And I think increasingly that the people in Southeast Asia are being victimized by that. And their infrastructure is falling victim to it as well. I would say there two issues that, at least in my experience in Indonesia, didn't get enough attention. One is just the impact of sea level rise. Um, I was always struck how little information there was about this impact. And yet, you know, there's probably no country in Southeast Asia or even the world that's more affected by sea level rise because Indonesia, as you all know, two-thirds of its area is water. 
And so uh, I'm happy that Indonesia's climate negotiator, a wonderful man called Rahmat Witsular, has begun to talk publicly now about how rising sea level is going to affect not just Jakarta, but some of the other major areas like uh, Semarang, which is a, a, a city in the, in the sort of northern part of Java. And that if current trends continue, it's going to displace tens of millions of people who are going to have to move. And he rightly asked the question, where are they going to move to? And how are you going to affect that move without conflict? Uh, and those are very important questions, you know, because that's, that's a large, Java is already fairly well populated. It's by far half of the population of Indonesia lives there. So if you see these mass movements, where are they going to move to? So that's, I think, going to be an issue. The other one that I don't think gets enough attention is on the maritime side. Um, obviously, fishing is a hugely important part of the economy for many Southeast Asian countries. And global warming is going to have a, a very significant impact on the fisheries. Um, and we're already seeing that here in the United States. But it hasn't really gotten, I think, the attention or, frankly, the research attention that it really needs. Um, because it is going to have a very, very serious impact. And again, we're, we're seeing that already uh, in, in the United States. And I think there's good studies about it. But it's going to the, the impacts need greater attention, I think, by the, on the part of academics. I'm actually going to piggyback off of yours. Uh, inland fishing, fisheries and the effects that climate change have on that are also very critical. Obviously, ocean fisheries, but inland fisheries, for example, the Tanli Sap Lake in, in Cambodia is the largest fishery in the world. Um, and it is obviously very critical to the food security of the people of Cambodia and, you know, extensively the region. But um, that, I think, is really important because you don't just fish in the ocean. You also fish on the land. Um, and with the river system, that's very critical. The other thing that I think is that is not being maybe connected, uh, the issue that's the, the two issues that are not being connected is the dam building by China and how that actually exacerbates the impact of climate change um, in the Mekong region. Um, it is, I'll, I'll go back to the Tanley Sap Lake, for example, this year, is the latest year in recent memory that the Tanli Sap River, which is, connects the Mekong to the Tanli Sap Lake, flowed backwards. And that's a super crucial uh, cycle um, for the Tanli Sap Lake to do because it floods the surrounding areas. And that's, that, that slurry is what makes it such a productive fishing spot. Um, and so however, yes, climate change has to do with that. But then the dam building coupled with that is also one of the reasons that that happened. And I think that if we can start making a little bit more, if we can start making more connections between the infrastructure being built and the climate change together, then maybe, you know, some stuff can be solved. And so jumping off the, the subject of China, that's obviously a huge concern in the region and particularly as the U.S. has disengaged um, within the region. Could you expand on just, you know, the, the both the how China is influencing other countries in the region, how it's expanding the influence through dams, through um, its work with um, climate aid, and then also just how the U.S. in your, obviously, as working State Department, yeah. your experience, sure. how the U.S. should be engaging, and maybe Admiral Gunn, to your experience um, within the, the military and humanitarian support, support and relief projects. Um, what could we be doing better? Sure. Well, so let me let me answer the China part first. Um, 
in, in two ways. First of all, um, I, I refer you to a really wonderful study that the World Resources Institute did where they kind of um, looked at uh, the Belt and Road projects and they concluded that there's a pretty dramatic um, dichotomy between policies that China is pursuing internally, which as Ashley said, are actually quite good now and they're, they're making pretty good progress um, in terms of promoting solar energy and, and all kinds of other renewable because their, their population is very, very concerned about air pollution and very, very concerned about climate change. So they're responsive to that. But on the other hand, their lending through the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, according to this study, is still very much focused on, on fossil fuels and on you know, basically carbonizing the, uh, these, these various countries that are recipients of this BRI largesse. So I think that, that's an important um, thing that needs to change. I will say that I think China is becoming more responsive internationally as well. Uh, I'll just give you one small example. I, I've been involved with a, um, a big hydro project that was funded by the, uh, by the Chinese in, in Sumatra. And it turned out that the, um, the project was going to be in an area that was the habitat for a newly discovered species of orangutan that is itself highly endangered already. And if the project proceeds, it's going to more or less wipe out that species. Um, so uh, a number of us have written to the Bank of China to point this out and to say that, in fact, there are alternatives. They could China, because it's already one of the, the best lenders of, of low-cost solar technology, instead of building a hydro facility, they could build a solar plant nearby, provide the same amount of electricity with none of the environmental costs and none of the costs to biodiversity. Hopefully, and somewhat surprisingly, I think the Bank of China came back and said, okay, we actually will review the project. So I think that was a, an encouraging sign. Of course, we'll have to see how they finally respond on it. But you know, I, I think they're, they're more attuned to the, some of the criticisms that they are receiving. Uh, kind of a two-part answer to your question, Esther. Um, in the first place, my personal view, not necessarily ASPs, is that the Belt and Road Initiative is brilliant. Uh, it uh, is a way of tying together what China lacks in comparison with the United States as allies, genuine friends. And this is, even though it's heavily financially weighted, this is a way of China to create uh, adherence, whether they're friends or allies, who knows? That remains to be seen. The other thing that I think is brilliant, again, Lee Gunn's view, is the island building in the South China Sea. Um, we have actually been nibbled to death in the South China Sea. And so those are two things that the U.S. Um, whole of government needs to address. But in particular, the military needs to figure out how to handle in the South China Sea. Um, the existence of those islands isn't the problem so much as the claims that go with them with regard to resources and and areas of the seas. Um, the other thing you asked about was humanitarian assistance. Until 2008, the Defense Department responded to humanitarian assistance disaster response requests around the world with whatever forces were on hand, um, equipped as well as those forces could be, given what they brought with them, and uh, considered these to be ad hoc missions. In the, 2008, the 
quadrennial defense review that every four years, uh, top to bottom review the Defense Department does, uh, decided that it needed to be the case that humanitarian assistance and disaster response was an explicit mission for the Department of Defense. Now that kind of sounds like a paperwork nice and deep, but it really means something. It means if it's a real mission, you can equip for it, and train for it, and exercise for it, which we had never done in the past. And so one of the features of the changes that we're seeing around us in the environment and the hardships that those changes are imposing on people uh, around the world is that the Defense Department, Navy and Marine Corps in particular, to my experience, are positioned to be able to deal with those among other missions that they're called on to perform. Um, Indonesia is one of those countries that's probably probably the, one of the most disaster-prone countries in the world. Uh, they're on the famous Ring of Fire, but also there's uh, really hardly a month goes by where there's not a tsunami or an earthquake or a volcano erupting somewhere. Of course, those have huge impacts on the local population. And I think um, the HADR exercises that we've done through the Pacific Command have really been terrific. And I just, um, if there's recommendation, it would be that we need to, if anything, not only sustain those, but uh, make them more complex. And we also need to maybe help Indonesia to think through how it can become more active regionally, because it's a pretty good bet that as climate change proceeds, we're going to see growing intensity of storms. They've already seen it. So there, uh, a lot of their neighbors, who uh, many of them are quite poor, are going to need more and more assistance. And you know, as Indonesia's income grows, they're going to have the, the capability to respond more, as, as we've seen in India's case. Uh, so it's really in our interest now to help them think through not only how they can respond to their own disasters, but also how they can begin to think more viciously about how they can help some of their poorer neighbors respond to, to those, what will certainly be future disasters. Ashley, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, just a quick note about China's influence in the region. I'm actually going to go a teeny bit outside of the region. So in the last two weeks, two Pacific Island countries, Kiribati and the Solomon Islands, switched their diplomatic ties from Taiwan to China. Now, as we all know, sitting in this room, the US is an ally of Taiwan. So, But when I was reporting out this story for NPR, I was told by the president of Kiribati as well as an expert who is from the Solomon Islands, studies them, et cetera, that part of that decision had to do with the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, that the U.S. was not showing up, was not taking these things seriously, was not a try, even attempting to address an existential crisis for those countries. And so I think if that, <laughs> if there is any sort of example of the reach of China in that part of the world, that's part of it. And as these two gentlemen just said, you know, the US, like how should the US be more engaged? They should be more engaged, essentially. You know, disaster relief. Do, you know, getting back into the Paris Climate Accord, um, that means a lot to countries uh, that are dealing with climate change. And if they can't depend on the US and then they have China, giving them money and you know building their infrastructure and just giving them a, an unlimited amount of resources, who are you going to go with? And the thing that the president of Kiribati said to me that I thought was very interesting 
was that I was like, well, you know, yes, China has been complimented recently for being more green. However, if you look at the south, if you look at Southeast Asia, they're actually putting more coal there. And he's like, no, 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 no. China will come to Kiribati and see the effects of climate change. U.S. I know Pompeo was just in the region, but like in journalism, we call that parachuting. Um, and he didn't spend much time there, and he just came to announce, you know, millions of dollars of aid, which is great. They, he, the president of Kiribati firmly believes that China is going to be there for them. And that is, I think, a message that should resonate with anyone who's concerned about China's influence in that part of the world. Like, yes, that is, that's deeply disturbing. And as we are nearing the November um, date of when we officially start the process of our pullout of Paris, um, that's something else for everyone to keep in mind. Um, but so with that, I think I'll open it up to questions. I'm sure there's some uh, clearly plenty of interest. So um, I believe that there's a mic. And if you could state your name, where you're from, and please um, keep it to a question. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks. Um, hi, my name's Rudra. I'm from WCAPS. My question's for Ashley, actually. Um, have you found in any of your reporting um, any effects of ocean acidification on the local communities? That is one of the adverse impacts of climate change. It's generally not talked about, but I was curious if there's been any impact on the local ecosystems, fisheries. And the second part of my question is, have you come across any stories you mentioned about um, uh, exacerbating climate? Have you come across any insurgency groups that are attacking, let's say, in a energy infrastructure assets rather than people. And I'm just drawing a parallel to some of the insurgency movements in eastern India that are going against development of coal power plants, for example. Have there been any parallels like that in the region? Thank you. Yeah, so I'll answer your first question. Yes, ocean acidification is a huge thing because of the, as we were talking about, the sea level rise, right? And so as sea level creeps further and further into, um, into the land, that if it's acidifying, obviously, then it's moving into the land and it's affecting fisheries. I know specifically in like places like Kiribati and even, I believe, places like the Philippines and Vietnam, it is intruding saltwater intrusion. Acidification intrusion is pushing, I believe, uh, the taro plant is grown in swamp water. Uh, and that swamp water is becoming, in, in many places, becoming less and less fresh because of sea level rise. And that is an issue <laughs> because the farmers don't have anywhere to grow their taro. And so they have to physically either move their plants or move their farms or stop growing what they've grown for, you know, decades. Um, so that's the first question. Your second question, so the, the study that I did cite was about the groups in India. In my personal reporting, I haven't, I don't know if you all might know more, I haven't really heard much about uh, insurgency, excuse, insurgency activity against specific infrastructure projects. Um, in the Philippines, not really, and not even really in Indonesia. However, I can imagine, and this is just me imagining, um, <laughs> that it is likely on their minds because those things are encroaching into their territory and into their communities. So if not now, then soon. And just for the um, acidification and also uh, salinization, the report you have in your hand covers a little bit about that. Um, so we definitely talk um, 
briefly about it just to bring it up as, as a topic we discussed. So uh, let's move here to the blue shirt. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Mike Anderson, retired Foreign Service officer. Uh, we all, I think we all know that um, these problems are complex. They're all interrelated. They're very tough to tackle or they would have been solved long ago. And it takes policies, resources, and political leadership to do anything. And I'd like to ask, put both the ambassador and the admiral on the spot, if they could look at our current government institutions that historically have led the way on both policy and programs on the environment, I mean State Department, USAID, and say PACOM in, in uh, Asia Pacific, what has been the practical impact of the administration's policies towards environment in the region? Is it business as usual, except we're pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, or has there been a cutback of funding, personnel, policy change, political pressure from Washington, et cetera? You take that. Sure, you there goes our, our nonpartisan. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let, let me let me uh, let me say this: I'm deeply concerned about the the. Uh, Deliberate de-emphasizing de of science. Um, and it, the effects are going to be lasting because what's happening is that the pool of, of scientists is being reduced. Um, it's being reduced uh, in a way that is extraordinarily rapid and very effective. And so uh, even things that don't necessarily appear to be directly related, like moving the Washington research component of the Bureau of Land Management to, uh, to uh, the vicinity of Denver, and in the process causing people to leave the government rather than make that move, uh, career civil servants and scientists. Um, there is a, a terrible atrophying effect on our ability to apply science to the things that are most important uh, with regard to our changing environment at the time which it, when it's most important to do that. Uh, it's right now. Um, so sure, it matters a lot that we, in the last month of this president's first term, um, we will, uh, only then will we actually leave the Paris Accord, but there are more pernicious things happening in the federal government right now. So it's not, there's also a reduction in funding for basic research. Um, and that's in health as well as other aspects that are important in um, dealing with the changes that we're facing. Um, I would say we've, we've suffered a serious loss of momentum in, in the last three years globally. Um, I'll just tell you one short story. Um, as we were all gearing up for the Paris Climate Talks, the foundation of the serious goals that were committed to there is the fact that the United States decided to work with China. And President Obama went to the Chinese leader and said, OK, if we're going to get something serious done in Paris, we have to lead the way. And then we will get others to follow. Unless we make our own serious commitments, no one else is going to pay the slightest attention. So the United States and China each made very, very serious, deep cuts 
um, in their nationally determined contributions. And that then paved the way for other countries to follow. But we had to make the point to everybody else, look, we're, we're, we're not asking you to undertake pain that we ourselves are not uh, committing ourselves to. And I think the fact that the United States has now withdrawn has given cover to a lot of countries to diminish their ambitions. And we saw that in the most recent climate talks that just took place at the UN. Um, the overall conclusion was that despite some pockets of, of ambition, so for example, uh, the, uh, Prime Minister Modi of India announced that a, a five-fold increase in their goal of renewable energy, which is a tremendous uh, uh, for a country of uh, an economy of their size. But despite all of those new pledges and the existing ones, the conclusion that came out of the UN climate talks was the United States is nowhere near going to make its target of trying to keep uh, global climate change to less than 2% increase. We're just not going to be able to do it. So uh, despite all of the doomsaying and all of the, everybody talking about how uh, all the important work needs to be done, it requires real leadership to get these things done. It requires, um, and frankly, it's only the countries like the United States that are really going to be able to do it. People don't, many of you maybe don't understand, but the United States has really unique diplomatic capacity. And when we go out and our ambassadors all get an instruction around the world to go and do something, we have a unique capability to get things done, and to mobilize people, mobilize coalitions, and encourage governments to do the right thing. And, you know, and we do that by the, by the power of our example. We ourselves are going to do this. So in a way, it's sort of a double whammy. Not only are we ourselves not committing as much anymore, but we've lost the sort of diplomatic initiative. And I think that the impact has already been very telling in, uh, in the climate world. And it's, I, I regret it. One more comment on the, um, on the momentum issue that Ambassador Blake portrays so well. Almost everything that was done in the last um, president's term had a climate mitigation or adaptation feature to it. The Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, for example, one of its many features was that it imposed on all of the signatories certain requirements with regard to managing emissions and moving forward both with adaptation and mitigation. Now, backing out of that has essentially wiped that partnership out. Interesting to note, though, that at the, um, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, after the U.S. withdrew from the TPP, President Xi, the first president of, uh, of China to ever speak or even attend in Davos, made a speech in which he essentially said, you know, that's not a bad uh, trade arrangement. And if you just made a few minor changes that, would, that we would want from China, that you could just substitute China for the United States. And I think that's the most graphic example of what China is endeavoring to do and what we're frankly allowing them to do around the world. Did you want to say anything? The only thing that I will say is we talked about the climate summit um, last week and the U.S. was certainly a noticeably um, uh, absent voice in that. Um, and yes, promises were made by larger countries to the countries that 
um, are on the forefront of this uh, of climate change, but um, experts, you know, now having kind of like analyzed all those things at this point, say it's it's not enough. The piecemeal promises, resources, money is not is not enough. Um, and I think that has I think that's very telling um, in terms of the momentum that was once there. All right, how about we go uh, to the woman here? Hi, I'm Clara Summers. I'm a graduate student at American University, interning at the Wilson Center, and have spent time in Indonesia. Um, so I <laughs> actually had dinner at your ambassadorial residence, which was nice. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> you did indeed. Um, so I had some Indonesia-specific questions, um, which is, as you said, Indonesia has made these great, like, no new deforestation pledges, is involved with a Red Plus agreement, yeah. um, but also has really been focused on expanding um, oil palm yep. um, plantations, which would involve more deforestation. Yes. And so I'm just wondering, is there any balance there, or is, are those truly two incompatible goals? Um, and similarly, there's been a lot of talk about moving the capital from Jakarta to Kalimantan, which is frequently the epicenter of a right. lot of these fires. So what can you just speak to those? Those things? are great questions. Um, so first on, on oil palm, um, this is one of the major issues that we worked on in, in my three years there was to try to get uh, not only the government, but also the companies, the big uh, palm oil companies, to commit to more sustainable policies, which they in fact have done now. So most of the companies have, have committed to no longer clearing any kind of new uh, primary forest or clearing any new peatland. And to the extent that pl planting has to take place, it's going to take place on previously degraded land. And you know, hopefully through increases in productivity as well. As you know, the EU has, uh, has asked a quite controversial measure that will ban um, CPO biodiesel exports into the, into the uh, into the EU. So both Indonesia and Malaysia are going to take the EU to the WTO because they believe that this is not a fair decision. But the reason that the EU acted the way it did was that they were worried that this by increasing these exports there would be an increase in deforestation. So so they basically want to make sure that the Indonesians are going to really hold their feet to the fire and make sure that there won't be any increase and that, in fact, if there is increases in production, it'll take place on previously degraded lands. We'll see. I mean, that, there's still a lot to be done there. And as I say, the other important part of this is the enforcement piece. The government has these, these great um, uh, things on the books, but actually getting enforcement is tough, as we see right now with all the fires that are taking place. Those are all illegal, but there's massive numbers of fires everywhere. So that's uh, so. Those are big issues. In terms of the moving of the of the capital, I mean, I think it's understandable because of the, the flooding that everybody understands is going to take place. Um, they have come under some criticism for what most people believe is going to be um, increased deforestation in Kalimantan. Um, the government has has said no, that's not the case. So we're going to do this in an environmentally sensitive way. But um, so I think. Definitely, a lot of the big environmental organizations are going to be watching this very closely, and 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 you know, going to try to keep the Indonesian government to its its pledges. But we'll have to see. And I, I will say, I think it's a it's a, a terrific opportunity 
for Indonesia to um, lead the way in uh, embracing new technologies that really could help quite substantially with climate change. So there's all kinds of new smart city opportunities. Of course, they need to have a, a good public transportation system right off the bat. They need to, they could have an entire system of electric buses and things like that. So there's a lot of things that they could do right off the bat that would make a huge difference and would, you know, dramatically reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. So, and they've just put out a tender right now to talk about a lot of these issues. So they, they are thinking broadly about this. And the man who's going to be in charge of this is the Minister of Planning, who is the guy who was in charge of the Low Carbon Development Initiative. So he's got all these, these pieces in his mind. And I, you know, so I'm, I'm reasonably confident that, that he's going to try to do this in a thoughtful way. All right, we'll just go here. Um, despite all that, all my training is in geology. And I want to take a look at this from the very big picture. And the very big picture is that uh, Greenland has melted six times in the course of human existence. You tell this to little 16-year-old Swedish girls, they faint. And we have to realize that there's a big picture climate change going on at the same time. And what's probably happening is that we're accelerating the interglacial down to a bottom at which sometime in the future the next glacier will come. Uh, unless we get really good at this global warming stuff, we may never have to be glaciated again. My appeal is that we move away from Henny Penny, the sky is falling, to a really serious long-term, here's what we can do about it program. Because baby, it's happening. Even if you cut off all the carbon right now, it's still going to happen because of natural forces. And, and how do we do that? How do we, how do we move some of those, yet another study telling me that the globe is warming, to when it warms, here's what we can do about it. Uh, I'm sorry, Kiribati, but you're going to have to move people to Siberia for the new farming opportunities. And same thing to Bangladesh. But those are very long-term programs, rehybridizing crops and stuff. It should begin soon, maybe the end of the century. You want to go I'll, after I'll, that, I'll, yeah. I'll take a shot at that. Um, you know, I would say that globally, we have made, civilization has made good progress on two big things. One, reducing the cost of solar, which has come down by about 80% in the last decade or so. And secondly, we've made good progress in the transportation field in, with, the, with the development of electric vehicles. There's still a long way to go, particularly here in the United States, on things like infrastructure, so that you know when you have your electric vehicle, you can actually charge it on the way up on I-95 when you're going to New York or Boston or wherever you're, wherever you're going. But I, nevertheless, I think these are big, big developments. And as more and more people buy electric vehicles, there's going to be more of an incentive to drive down battery costs, which are sort of the big leading challenge that remains. So all that's good. But I think the people that think very broadly about these things say that we've still got to make, uh, uh, we've still got a lot of really big things to do. We've still got to figure out on the food side, how do we grow food in a more sustainable way? And then more importantly in the transportation sector. You know, we all talk about what is your own carbon footprint. The biggest carbon footprint that you have is airplane travel. How do we make airplane travel more sustainable? Uh, and again, there's, do, there's, there's way to do this. 
But a, a lot of this boils down to putting a price on, on, on carbon. And you know, very smart people like James Baker and George Schultz have argued in, in learned papers that, that this makes sense. But it not, has not yet been embraced. But I do believe that if we have a carbon tax in the United States, that would help finally to put a, a proper price on the practices that we're already engaged in. And then the market itself would encourage solutions of, of various kinds. The third thing I would just say that I think is important is, is the, the role of forests. Um, the EU, um, which is now increasingly becoming the, country, the, the group of countries that think the most broadly and ambitiously about this since the United States is not doing it, they are engaged in a, in a very substantial reforestation program. And many people have said that if you, any country, uh, can take uh, both a reforestation program and as well as stopping deforestation in places like Indonesia, you can, you can more than offset the contributions that are made from, let's say, via, uh, automobile uh, emissions. So there's huge gains to be made from, from forestation that I don't think are really properly appreciated. But, are, but these forests really do act as carbon sinks. So that's why a lot of us really care about deforestation in Indonesia. Because again, you're, you're not only losing the carbon benefits that, they, they, that these trees have by absorbing them, but when you cut them down, you're releasing large amounts into the atmosphere. So I think those are some, kind of, some of the big things that we as a civilization can do. <laughs> uh, what you say is exactly right. I mean, these changes have happened before to one degree or another. Um, and so often when I talk about these topics and how important they are right now, and you alluded to that as well, um, people sometimes say, well, you know, they, these changes have happened before. This is a, and they infer that this is a natural thing entirely uh, and that the acceleration is somehow trivial. Um, one of the things that I point to is that when I was born, because I'm the older guys in the room, um, there were 2.4 billion people on the planet. Uh, and the last time the climate changed, which was more than 12,000 years ago any, in any real demonstrable way, we were hunter-gatherers. And it was a matter of folding your tent uh, and moving to the next place. Well. With 2.4 billion and now 7.4 billion heading for nine or something, we can't fold our tents anymore. And so we have to take this seriously. And I think part of the, the thing, and I'm guilty of this occasionally too, my hair is on fire. This is so darn important. We've got to get it done. The fact is that so much is required and so little relatively is being done that I think there's a natural inclination to say this is even more important than it is. But I think it's the fundamental existential question facing every nation, every tribe, and every people on the face of the earth. So it is important. Well, I'm going to take the privileges last question because I really, yeah, no, go ahead, yeah, about that. Um, I heard your question as how do we sort of moderate the freak out, right? And I think a part of that is diversifying the conversation around climate change 
When I've reported on climate change in Southeast Asia, there's none of this like back and forth debate on whether or not it's real. It's happening. So what do we do about it now? And, you know, God love the scientists who are raising the alarm and ringing the bells, but a lot of this stuff, those people, the people in that region are already experienced, they already understand what they need is the help and the resources and for the other larger, more emitting countries to do their part. And so I think also, also sort of like diversifying the conversation and just making it more just it's like just for people to realize that it's already accepted what you're saying is already accepted it's happening it's happening so let's figure out how to manage it southeast asia the pacific islands are already there so now the conversation or so now the next step is what can be done to address that because it's not you you said it it's happening baby <laughs> and there's no stopping it and so I think diversifying voices, diversifying stories, bringing out, you know, the slices of life, even, you know, all over the world, in particularly Southeast Asia, even where these things are affecting people. But I will say the bottom line is, is that they're not having the debate over it. And so if we can stop having the debate over it, we can actually maybe start moving towards a place where we can start implementing and thinking about policies that address it. And I think the, as we had mentioned before we started this, you know, ASP is working to go to different towns and country, places around this country to talk about this issue. And oftentimes it's the people in, you know, Miami, Florida that are witnessing it already. It's the, you know, when we went to Camp Lejeune and there's still tarps on a lot of the buildings that were destroyed. So um, it's happening here in the U.S. as well where it's firsthand impacts. People are witnessing that. Um, it's unfortunate it takes that point of those impacts being felt um, for us to move, but I agree it's, we need to move past. So we are at our time, but just quickly, I really like to end on a positive note. So if there is just one quick thing that you've you know, witnessed, whether in Indonesia as a case study or just here in the U.S. or generally um, in your studies too, Ashley, um, a, a positive uh, progression that we're facing. I think there's a lot of challenges for sure. I don't want to sugarcoat it, but um, ending on some of those those opportunities, maybe. Armogan? Um, I do travel. I travel for the American Security Project and for the Military Advisory Board of CNA. Um, and what I see is activity and ingenuity and human energy being applied to this everywhere. Um, it would be nice to have federal leadership uh, in this area, but we don't have it now, and we're unlikely to have it in the immediate future. But there is so much um, leadership being evidenced in the states and, and the cities uh, that we should be very proud of and we should talk about, and I think that should give us great comfort that our fellow Americans, at least, are uh, working hard on this and they're having great successes. And what's at least as important is they're talking with each other about how those successes work. I, I agree with what Lee just said. I, I would say um, the thing that gives me encouragement is um, the role of the private sector. So I'm now in the private sector. I follow these things more closely. And you know, I think I, I mentioned the, the science-based targets initiative. I think that's a great one. That's a global uh, project that's underway. 
but even here in this country, I think the, our largest, most important companies like Amazon and Walmart are taking this very, very seriously. Uh, I don't know if all of you saw uh, Amazon announced uh, fairly recently that they're, they're going to reach net zero emissions, climate emissions, by 2040. So that's 20 years from now, not, not very long. Uh, and that's, that's a pretty big deal for a, co a company like uh, Amazon because they use these big data centers that, that use giant amounts of electricity. So they've got to figure out how they're going to completely decarbonize that whole sector. And, you know, Amazon, when they make a decision like that, it's like Walmart. It'll have a very, very far-reaching impact. One of the first decisions they made was to uh, acquire, they're going to now acquire 100,000 electric trucks. Those are, the kind of, those are the kind of decisions that are going to start to make a difference and are going to start to create the momentum that I was talking about earlier. We may have lost a little bit of the diplomatic momentum, but I think the private sector sees this train coming and they're, they're planning, regardless of what um, some of the deniers say. Ashley, quickly. Um, just a positive note. Uh, the innovation is just really stunning to me. Innovation meaning, you know, everything from management to, I mean, even legal management. Uh, quick, quick story. Uh, Bangladesh, in a, co a couple of uh, months ago, gave all of their rivers in Bangladesh, as you know, is a, is a delta country, gave all of their rivers, and you may disagree or not agree with this, but they gave all their rivers the same rights as humans. And that gives environmentalists and scientists a platform. It hasn't been tested yet because it's so new. But to keep, uh, you know, leaders and private sectors, you know, take them to court if they want to. Um, for the health of the river, for the health of the environment. Other countries have done the same. I believe Bolivia is one of them. Here in the US, um, in Ohio, Toledo, Ohio, passed a similar sort of thing. All of that is very like gray right now. <laughs> I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that play out. But the innovation, I believe, is just absolutely amazing. And just also the coalescing around this one serious issue is also really amazing to me. People in Southeast Asia are being brought to their feet and taking to the street because of climate change and just their demands uh, to be accommodated for it. And I just think that that is any and, you know, any and all engagement is, is, is possible, in my opinion. And I think that is a good way to look at. Great. Well, I think that's a great way to end. Um, please join me in thanking these wonderful panelists for a, a great discussion. And for more, check out our website, americansecurityproject.org. Thanks.